0: Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the NOLCast. So, Bud, we're always fortunate to have the great sponsors that we do. Louisiana Hot Sauce, our title sponsor and has been for so long. Uh, but incredibly fortunate to have the support from our listeners. Uh, email questions, uh, Patreon questions. We had so many, we needed to circle back, run another pod this week. And uh, we've got some, you know, late breaking news, so to say. Not really all that late or breaking but uh, certainly some more developments around the football program we'll jump into it tonight and excited to record a second in a uh off-season week here of the nullcast second episode in an off-season week of the episode of the nullcast
1: you know we, we we always say hey we're, we're going to do 75 episodes this year we're, we're going to keep them all really interesting really good and there's always a couple off-season weeks where we end up dropping two so this happens to be one of them like you said thank you louisiana hot sauce awesome supporters of ours and I guess we start tonight with some uh, some news that I would say is is uh, negative on the whole, uh, but I think you can also find some positivity from it if you if you want. As far as you know, drawing conclusions about the staff and you know maybe about the long term direction of the program. So, uh, Nigel Lee Kelly, a player that Florida State staff really really likes, and uh, they were on him early, offered him early, and ultimately got a commitment from him. He decommitted. If you don't know who Nigel Lee Kelly is? Well, guess what? He was FSU's what second or th- third rated player, I believe third after obviously Hunter and McCall, big time defensive lineman out of Dillard High School down there in Fort Lauderdale, uh, has risen from you know a kind of a lower three star rated player uh, to we we now at twenty four seven Sports have him as the number one hundred and one player. In the country, and he's only been rising basically every single update as he dominates you know, yet another camp, and people realize just how big and athletic he is. So he decided to uh, to decommit and open up his recruitment. Man, so what what was your what was your reaction on this?
0: Yeah, I mean, not uh, a, a total surprise. There had been a little bit of rumblings of this, but the the staff had been confident about Kelly, and and it's worth pointing out that they remain confident. Now we'll have to see you know, what we ultimately make of that, and if that's just coach speak or whatever else, but, uh, you know, said 80% joke, 20% true, uh, did our best to, you know, try to get this three-star prospect to just fly under the radar, but uh, that was never going to happen, particularly at the high school that he was at, and in the time uh, of the recruiting world that we live in, uh, but, you know, you can certainly take the positives that they developed a relationship with a kid uh, who committed as early as they did, and they're on a Despite the decommitment, they're in a decent place, uh, a decent place that will include a battle of pretty much every program who is really, wink, wink, nod, nod, invested in college football. So uh, this will be an interesting, you know, we can take away, see how they do. Uh, I tend to look at it as a positive. I don't think this is any kind of, you know, beginning of uh, of the end of the recruiting class or anything else, but uh, really talented kid. Ultimately, a kid that's going to be a 150, 125 national type prospect and, you're gonna have to try to beat the players uh, that get involved in those type of kids. I think you said it
1: well, right? Like, is him decommitting a positive? The event, the the, the no, of course not. But if you want to take it as uh, proof of a staff that is is generally, you know, doing a good job of evaluating, uh, doing a good job of offering kids, you know, before they really shoot up in the rankings. I they don't always do it, but I think that overall they have done a pretty good job, you know of that. I think they have, you know, maybe a player in their class in, in Aaron Hester who, you know, I I think is probably a four-star quality player. Um, you know, who's currently a three but other than that, like their kids for the most part have sort of gone up in the rankings, which is good to see. I'm just going to come out and say this. Unless the player has a special connection to the Seminoles, it's not going to be that easy for Florida State which is basically what lost 6 plus games every single year in the regular season since 2017. So since these kids were you know, in in 8th grade to sign like top 100 level players this year, especially if they have the year we think they're going to have on the field, which is probably like that 5 and 7, 6 and 6 range. You know, maybe a game or, or you know, better or worse than that. So I think from that standpoint it's going to be a struggle, but it's encouraging to see that other major programs want the guys that you're offering, right? Um, I also don't think that Kelly is going to be alone in decommitting, not only from FSU's class, but I think that a lot of players nationally are going to be decommitting and probably within the next, I don't know, five or six weeks, maybe eight weeks, because we know that visits are opening back up. Kids beginning in June are going to be taking not only unofficials, but also officials. Camps are opening back up. Off campus workouts are opening back up. All this stuff's about to open back up. All of these recruits are about to have new inputs that they did not previously have inputs from their eyes and from their ears and from their feet walking around campuses that they've never been to. Not that Kelly's never been to FSU, but my point here is a lot of new information, in person information is going to change the game here for a lot of players and ultimately. FSU will not be alone in suffering decommitments. And I, I think, you know, like you said, they're certainly not out of it for Kelly, even though, I mean, it's not a great, like typically you don't get guys back who decommit from you, but it does happen. And in fact, it happened to this staff pretty recently, right? With with Malik McLean, remember that? He decommitted. A lot of people thought he was going to go to Ole Miss. This staff behind the scenes said, hey, look, we know it's not a great look, but we do think we're still very much in it for this. For this kid. And they ended up getting McLean back. You know, not maybe all bad. I let me ask you this. Do you think that he would have committed to FSU back then if he was already a, a top one hundred prospect like he is now?
0: Uh, you know, I doubt it. Um, although that did kind of seem to to come about. Just seemed like he was had a, a strong uh early impression. I don't want to say first impression. Uh so hard to say, but no. I mean the, the kid obviously is uh, aware as he should be as to how sought after he will be, uh, appears as though uh, you know the mom's going to be a major influence there, and they're going to go about the process and wish him the best of luck. But uh, no, I mean I I agree that if this kid in the back of his head had uh, I'm a four star prospect, I'm a potential top one hundred kid, I'm a kid that's uh, you know going to be looking at Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, Florida, Miami, Florida State. I'm not sure he would have necessarily pulled the trigger when he did.
1: I I think I would agree with that and. I, I will note that he does have a good relationship with the coaching staff. Uh, Papuchis, by the way, I'm not going to say he's the best recruiter on the staff, but he is an underrated recruiter. Right? He's a guy who stays on top of his communication with recruits. He's a guy who does form pretty decent bonds with recruits, and, and we, we know that they like each other. So I think that's an important thing to remember here. I don't think they're totally out of it with Nigel Lee Kelly. The other thing I want to point out here is that I've been talking a lot about finding the sweet spot in who you offer and who you get to commit and, and who you go after. And to me, that sweet spot, I'm not saying for every player, but for most of the players is the sweet spot. Like the you want to find that slot where it's like, hey, Bama and Georgia are not going to go hard after this kid because they they just barely don't have room because if they did and you go 6 and 6 and they have the years they're probably going to have are you really going to hold on to that kid so you do like you want to find the guys that are like hey he's on our board he's just kind of you know below the fold for us he's a player we know could help us we just maybe don't, quite don't have room if you can live in that area as a Florida State team that is going to be fighting to make a bowl i think you're going to do a really good job on the recruiting trail i, I take a guy like hester right Right now, I think he's a damn good football player. I think he's going to help you. I just saw Mortimer last weekend. I think he can help you based on where you are right now uh, with, with your roster. That's not to say you don't want top 100 players. Of course you do. Everybody wants top 100 players. There's no prize for second place in recruiting. So I don't know that it behooves them to go out and have a bunch of top 100 kids committed to them right now if those kids aren't actually going to sign with them. So evaluating the likelihood of signing the player and max, like you want to maximize the talent of the players you can actually sign. And that seems like common sense, but there's some strategy to that. I think they need to keep that in mind. And I think in large part, they, they kind of are, you know, look look at the linebacker position. There's some sort of safety targets, not like safety, the position, but almost like when you're picking schools, right? You have some safety schools, you have some reach targets, you have some kind of goal targets. Um, I, I think they're doing a nice job of that with with that position, and I know they're continuing to evaluate defensive end, you know, pretty hard. But they they need to make sure they find that sweet spot in this class. Um,
0: you know, we'll certainly continue to follow this super talented kid, uh, a guy that Florida State knew they were going to be uh, in for a fight to try to keep. Uh, they're in it. It'll be interesting to see how they fare against some of these schools that we talked about. Uh, but Nigel Lee Kelly decommits, and uh, we'll. You know, we'll, we'll watch, follow, and see where he ultimately ends up. Uh, Bud, before we get to a little contractual talk about some future scheduled games, why don't we uh, throw to you real quickly to talk about our friends who are experts in the contract world and uh, ever so fortunate to be able to pair with Shannon and chat.
1: Never once thought about decommitting from the team at Legendary Home Loans. Over 150 NOLCAST listeners have now chosen the legend, legendary team With Shannon and Chad, 844-FSU-LOAN for their home loan or their refi. I think the numbers speak for themselves, but if you want a little personal testimonial, I've used them twice. It's great rates. It's customer service. They're personable. They're honest. They're straightforward with you, and they really want to help you out. They're going to be as creative as legally possible and and really go the extra mile for you, especially through our our NOLCAS loan program, 844-FSU-LOAN. It's 844-FSU-LOAN. Hit up the legendary team today and tell them we sent you.
0: So uh, the 2020 decade has all kind of interesting twists and turns for Florida State from a schedule perspective. uh, We found out with some finality, I guess, over the last 36 hours as to who their opponents will be for the 2024 season uh, and also how much money Florida State is forking up uh, for those two non-cons. So that is a little bit of less interest to me. 2024 is an interesting year. The rest of the 2020s is spent with Florida kind of plus one uh, SEC team and then every once in a while included in Notre Dame as well. Uh, so interesting next six or seven years for Florida State, uh, really eight or nine years for Florida State from a scheduling perspective. But 2024 will be uh, Memphis to which you are paying $1.3 million. That seems like a pretty significant check to write in uh, Charleston Southern for $450,000. Uh, in addition to that, you'll have the uh, typical Florida game as well.
1: I'm all for this. Um, I, I I understand why you want to schedule like crazy uh, in, in, in the future because of, of the expanded playoff that we all think is coming that a lot of athletic directors are scheduling for. Uh, but that, that's not going to be here you know, by, by 2024. Um, Memphis is a team that if Mike Norvell and staff do even a decent job, FSU will be favored uh, to beat by that time. Charleston Southern is obviously a, a buy game and that's, that's a pretty cheap buy game.
0: 450 K is that, is that, that's a, that's a steal. Yeah. I guess that check goes a long way, uh, in, in that particular conference, but yeah, 2024, uh, just cause you don't get an SEC not school, not necessarily reprieve Memphis Charleston Southern Florida. And this is one of your, uh, Notre Dame cycle on cycle off years as well. So Trip to Notre Dame—that'll be a—that'll be a hell of a schedule.
1: Can, can I rant about something for a minute? Not—not not rant, maybe, but just kind of express some annoyance. I, I really get annoyed when I see fans, you know, on social media, or not even annoyed, but just I, I'm like, do you guys really not see the picture here? And, and this is an opinion, so maybe it's just this is my perspective as opposed to what the actual, you know, picture is. But from my perspective. I see a lot of fans saying, hey, we don't play anybody except for Florida, right? Or we don't play anybody except for Florida and Notre Dame. And I think there are two things wrong with this. Number one, it drastically underestimates the quality of the teams in the ACC. You're not playing a bunch of AAC teams or a bunch of like Sunbelt or Conference USA teams. AAC teams put, put guys in the league you know, second or third only to the sec you're playing a lot of really high quality players there's some pretty decent coaches in this league and is it as good as the sec no is it as good as the big 10 no not most years but it's not a nothing schedule if you have an acc schedule plus florida you're playing miami every year fsu fans don't want to hear this but miami's been pretty damn good over like the last half decade and if he I don't think is a terrible coach. He may not be the best coach in America, but like, they seem to have things at least competent over there right now. They don't, Miami doesn't suck. Florida does a really nice job under Dan Mullen. You know, like, are they going to catch Georgia? Are they taking as, as much advantage of FSU being down as they probably should be? No, but they're still not an easy out. They're still like a top 10 team for the most part under Mullen. I don't like the dismissal of the ACC schedule. It's just, hey, there's, there's nothing there. And I also, I, like, if you had that attitude, FSU's never going to develop these interconference rivalries that it so desperately needs to develop if it wants to create, you know, ticket value within the schedule. You know what I mean? Like, you can't have people looking at this as, oh, this home slate sucks because it's, all, like, Florida doesn't come here this year. No, man, but, like, you need to appreciate the games against NC State at home, against Miami. I mean, Miami's a bad example, obviously, because they are a rival, but, like, and when Clemson comes to town, when NC State comes to town, when North Carolina or the Hokies or Georgia Tech comes to town, th- those are games that you need to appreciate, I think, as a fan. And I don't want to tell people how to be a fan for the most part. I, I don't like to get into that. I think they're just wrong in thinking those are nothing games, and, and it's kind of it's kind of crazy to me.
0: Yeah, and if nothing else, it's uh, with the way the conference is you know constructed currently go look at how infrequent Florida State plays Notre Dame, play some of those coastal schools uh, that you should certainly enjoy it when you get, get the opportunity and, and not write it off as a as a nothing game. And, you know, this program over the past couple of years has hopefully humbled you slightly as to where Florida State's place in the college football world is and wins over NC State and, uh, you know, others will certainly be desired and looked for and, and hoped for in the next couple of years as you hopefully start to turn this ship around a little bit. So. And you know what? The losses count. Like, you may think those are nothing teams, but
1: when you lose to them, and for the most part, you're not going to run the table against the ACC, even when you're good. Like, those losses count, man. And they, they, they hurt you. So if you want to talk about, okay, playoff or non-playoff, but like a good bowl or not a good bowl, like th- those add up. Playing all these other huge marquee out-of-conference games when you already have Florida and you already have Notre Dame, you know, fairly often, it is not real smart. It's just not.
0: Schedule is always something we love to talk about. Uh, just saw that come down the pipeline. Wanted to uh, put it in the show. A, another subject matter that uh, I hate to have to bring up. It's just uh, it's just horrible. Uh, Bud and I have both sat here and, and talked about uh, how much it's, uh, I don't know, it's just un- really unfortunate. And what I'm trying to get to, uncomfortably so here, is that Gino Hayes, a uh, young man at the age of 33, has gone into hospice care, uh, tied to the health of his liver. So we certainly send Gino, uh, the best, uh, Gino was a hell of a linebacker there out of Madison County, played one of the better individual games I've ever seen, uh, Florida state from a defender in the 2000 was a 2007 Alabama game, you know, certainly prayers up to Gino Hayes, his family want to wish him the best, send him the best and a, uh, horrible story to see about, uh, uh, you know, individual that's so early in the process of life
1: i just had no idea that was going on man you know like I, I i i was a student at florida state for i think what two of the four years you know that that gino was there and man that just like like it seemed like out of nowhere to hospice care I, uh it's got me a little shook up man that, that sucks especially a you know, guy guy who's younger than you are i'm, I'm 36 he's 33 at I, I read, I read one of the stories, I think it was until last Democrat said that, you know, he was what, uh, awaiting a liver transplant potentially. So, you know, certainly hope that he he's able to get that, man. That hmm, That's, that's brutal.
0: Really is. So, uh, again, prayers to Gino Hayes, his family, and, uh, hopefully we'll have nothing but the, but positive updates tied to the subject matter. A little bit of a tough individual transition there, but, uh, but if you if you played the sport uh, of football more than likely at some point in time you lined up for the Oklahoma drill it sounds as though uh, i don't you know certainly don't know that the Oklahoma drill has been quite the foundational pillar of football practice uh, that it was say in the uh, you know 90s and 80s 70s 60s etc uh, you know i think a lot of the talk about the Oklahoma drill over the past couple of days has has been brought up tied to some of the rule changes and participation uh, periods of college football, but it, it looks like a drill that perhaps is soon to go off into the uh, into the the walk of, of history. But uh want to just have an easygoing, lighthearted conversation about some of the better participants that one could pick from a all-time Florida state team. I know you guys did this on the Cover Three podcast. The listener, our listener was what, what spurred this idea, but we had a couple people, people reach out to the Nolcast account. About putting together an all-time FSU Oklahoma drill, and we'll uh, we'll give it a, certainly our best shot.
1: Yes, yeah, so I I thought about this, and I'm uh, uh i I'm, I'm on uh, I'm on the show on, on cover three with uh, with with Danny Cannell. So, you know, obviously he he played against one of the guys who's going to be on my all-time team. Now, the team I draft, the team I drafted on cover three. Excuse me, uh, I had the first pick. I took Larry Allen. So, you know, maybe the best guard ever to play the sport. Almost certainly the. Uh, you know, the, uh, the best, uh, the best run blocking guard we, we've seen, uh, him I took Warren Sapp pretty good in the Oklahoma drill setting. Uh, it took, uh, Alan Fanica, the guard from LSU who, you know, two time first team, all American uh, hall of famer in the NFL. And then I took Leroy Selman. So Bucks fans will appreciate that. And then I took Shade Tree, Marvin Jones and Mike Allstott is my running back. So Pretty Like, that's a pretty good team. I think I'm probably going to blow you off the ball, and I've got two guys who can really move on the defensive line, and i got an absolute thumper at both running
0: back and uh, and linebacker. All right, so this is the six-man variety of the Oklahoma drill here. Uh, for the Florida State perspective, why don't you lead us off here, bud?
1: I mean, right from the top, more menace. You, you, you have to go Greg Jones, I think, right? I mean, although I think there's an argument for Allen. Probably, like he 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 was a dude who, who could really mash. I'm sure we'll have some early '90s guys. Maybe throw out Pooh Bear Williams, but for me, running back here, it has to be Greg Jones.
0: Uh, the other name that I would say you'd have to have in contention is William Floyd. That's a good one too. That's a, a guy that's a first round pick and would be a a, a massive asset in the drill. But uh, not only did you pick a great option, you also referenced one of the more hysterical in game. Uh, pieces of production that you're ever going to see in college football with the Greg Jones trip to Subway. So I've I've got to give you a lot of points for that. Uh, I'm I'm trying to remember what uh, what
1: show that was on, but it, it, if if you are of a certain age, you certainly remember Greg Jones more
0: mayonnaise. That was a live cutaway in game. That they played that on air. Yeah, that was a production. <laughs> that was an in-game production, if I remember correctly. I'm almost sure. I think it's one of the ESPN two games uh, that Florida State had at the time. So if if you were a younger
1: fan or a fan that was not watching that game, this is probably two thousand four or two thousand three, maybe two thousand two. But I think I was in school by then. Anyway, uh, so Greg Jones was just an absolute workout freak. I mean, just he looked different than all the other guys in that team who who were freaks and were going to go on, go play in the NFL. And they were like, "What do you eat?" And he's like, "All right, go, we'll go to Subway. I'll show you." And he gets like a double meat sub with like cheese, and then uh. He g comes the condiments. And this lady's putting the mayonnaise mustard on there or whatnot. And he's like, uh, more mayonnaise. And he is just and she's like, More he's like, More mayonnaise. And like I don't know if he asked like three times, but he definitely like said it like twice to where it was just a, a crazy amount of calories on that sandwich. And uh now luckily we have better food choices. In Tallahassee asked in Subway, you can go to Madso or Township. But uh, at the time, uh Tali did not have as many good food spots and uh, subway it was especially for greg jones
0: yeah i mean i think he was even uh he was really just proclaiming that he was he was very fortunate uh from the you know was not he joe frazier's nephew or something like that i mean greg jones is one of the more just physically put together individuals you're ever going to see if you want to go to youtube you can put in the greg jones subway diet you will find a video that a uh, single shot put up about five years ago it's only a minute and 38 seconds there's no better way to spend uh, a hundred uh, or a minute and thirty-eight. Uh, no better way to spend hundred seconds of your time than watching that. Uh, but okay, so you've got Greg Jones at running back. We've gone through the nostalgia there long enough. Uh, why don't you give us your two uh, linemen up front, offensive linemen?
1: Yeah. So I, I think the one Danny Cannell took this. Uh, Walter Jones is just really hard to pass up. Uh, Cannell is still salty that they redshirted Walter Jones. He think he thinks they could have won a national title if they had not redshirted Walter uh, in, in his first year. When, uh, when Danny was playing quarterback, um, I, I think that's an obvious one. The, the second guy here, I, I think you can either go, you could go Jamie, you could go Rodney Hudson, or you could go Trey Thomas, unless I'm missing somebody, but like those to me stand out. Rodney Hudson, I think we appreciated as being a very good player on not, not a very good team at the time, but he's actually having a ridiculous career in the NFL. I don't know how many more years he needs to play to get in like the Hall of Fame discussion, but dude, he's been in the NFL for, what was his last team? The 2011 team or the 2012 team?
0: He's been in the NFL, uh, all sorts of metrics, both <laughs> advanced and simple, uh, that will let you know he's had a phenomenal career. I mean, the amount of snaps the guy takes uh, without getting beaten, the amount of time in between sacks, he's just a fantastic player in in oklahoma for me i've always valued guards over tackles just personally uh, i was going to go with uh with rodney and jamie dukes here
1: that that makes a lot of sense i i think because you know walter was not
0: as lanky tall you know what i mean Like, like he he's not yeah he's not a liability by any means uh and he's not you know he's not yeah you're right he's not six foot seven six foot eight giant wingspan but uh again not (laughs) anytime you can put Walter Jones out there I don't think you have to worry about it but uh, for me I went with the with the two guards
1: I I like that a lot now defensive lineman I think this gets really really interesting I think I went Darnell Dockett and then Ron Simmons Farouk as as my two two guys who could definitely get off blocks but who are also physical enough to you know stone the blocker in front of them but there are really no wrong choices here i, I don't think uh un- unless you just pick somebody crazy and then i'm gonna have to tell you you're wrong
0: <laughs> no there's no wrong choices i mean you could go um i i wanted andre wadsworth both because he played on end and he played so much in the interior that he's uh got the ability to be explosive and also get a stalemate uh, this may be a little bit of a not necessarily a, a wild card but if you give me money year Broderick Bunkley, that's Ooh. one of the better defensive linemen that you've seen out of Florida State. And in a sport that is nothing but wildly gifted, physically imposing individuals, Broderick Bunkley is one of the more imposing characters that's played at Florida State in the last 20 years. So uh, I was going to go with Bunkley. and eh, Wadsworth, Corey Simon, you could you could flip a coin for me uh, for the other one.
1: I think that's actually some really good picture out there. I, I like that, and I, I feel like that's, You'd have a hard time running on that team for you. Uh, now, linebacker.
0: I went with Marvin Jones. Yeah, I mean, it's just Marvin, man. I mean, this when, when you've got maybe the best college linebacker uh, of the last 40 or 50 years, I just you just choose Marvin Jones.
1: By the way, uh, linebackers for our national draft, incredibly tough to figure out. So uh, Chip took Lawrence Taylor. Hard to go wrong with Lawrence Taylor. Uh, I thought Marv. I took Marvin Jones. Uh, We had had Ray Lewis go. uh, I forgot who Tom took. Maybe Luke Kuechly or just somebody really good like that. But like Derek Thomas didn't get picked, and I am like Derek Thomas. I think people would think of him more if he had not you know died in the car crash uh, once he was in the NFL. But that that guy was crazy good in college. Who would be your like if I took Marvin? And you, and we were like having a draft against each other for uh, you know for kind of like we are now but like more formal one. Who do you go with if you have to pick another FSU guy?
0: I mean, Daryl Bush is a name that is is there certainly for me. Uh, Daryl Bush, uh, in my opinion, kind of waned in his level of performance for his first two years. He was maybe one of the better linebackers in the country. Um, look, when you've got. Again, we've got one of the better people to ever play the position in Brooks. Uh granted, that's outside, but you know, it's pretty damn good. Uh don't necessarily lend itself to the the most strengths of uh of Oklahoma. But uh, if you're just wanting to get me a run stopping linebacker, I'm I'm gonna think early career Daryl Bush.
1: I, I like that a lot. Danny brought up Derek Brooks and, and my thought was like Derek Brooks is To me, he's notable for being like so fast and like having such incredible range. But like, I I never thought of him as like like a huge thumper, right? But you know, Cannell would have been there on those teams, and I'm not going to tell him he's wrong for a guy that probably saw them do the Oklahoma drill in practice. He did confirm, by the way, that Marvin Jones was just different level, and uh, the scout team also did not run successfully, unsurprisingly, here uh, on Marvin Jones uh, in, in the middle, but like. Cowart, I think, is somebody you got to look at. Coward, Buster Davis is a great Oklahoma linebacker. Ernie Sims probably was pretty good. Lawrence Timmons, I think, uh, was a dude who could really hit two. Oh, Timmons hit hit like a pile of
0: bricks, absolutely. Another yeah. guy on that team, Nigel Bradham. Yeah, bro Yeah, Bradham. Bradham is. Uh, is- Designed in a lab for Oklahoma. I mean, are you yeah. kidding me? Not, not have, just not having to turn those hips at all. Uh, yeah, that Nigel Bradham is a great shout. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I, I think, I think for me, it's it's probably like Jones and then you know Bush Bradham coward.
0: Not, not that Ernie couldn't hit, but the rest of those guys were just bigger. Yeah, well, that's a fun, fun walk down memory lane. If if nothing else, and uh, seriously. If you take nothing from this podcast, just hit up old Greg Jones Subway Diet and you can thank me on Twitter tomorrow.
1: I feel like we've had a lot of fun in these podcasts recently, man.
0: You know? That's, that's good. You know, I know that uh, we're never accused of sunshine pumpers or anything else, but it's good to good to be able to chuckle and enjoy a subject matter. And particularly when you're, you know, history's as rich as Florida State. It's great to be able to have a lighthearted look back at some of that.
1: We, we spun a decommitment tonight as... A, a positive as far as the evaluation, uh, capabilities of the staff. So we, we are, we're sunshine pumping for sure.
0: Oh my gosh. Have you seen this thing on Twitter? Uh, I believe I'm aware of what you're talking about. We talking about, a. it's all this and we're like, Oh my goodness, 80 pounds, man. I mean, I mean, I don't, this is the one thing when I watch the, uh, uh, <laughs> what's the, the, tiger man out in Oklahoma there uh tiger king excuse me uh when I when I saw that I'm like oh this is this is going to make this way more popular than it should be uh just you know strapping tannerite things and shooting rounds of bullets into them uh having a good time in the outdoors and maybe distracting yourself when life doesn't otherwise give you fun things to do uh, but the idea that this this ombre slapped 80 pounds of tannerite and exploded, which was felt, you know, in towns all over his county, evidently. Um, yeah, you're a moronic individual, and I'm not really sure what you thought was going to come from that process. Headline.
1: Kingston police say approximately 80 pounds of tannerite were used at that gender reveal party because which other one uh, that caused a massive explosion that shook shook homes for miles. The man who detonated this turned himself into police is cooperating. They haven't decided on the charges yet. Uh, this is interesting. So they used 80 pounds of Tannerite. Uh, there's a bomb threat standoff chart, right? For context, 60 pounds of Tannerite is enough to destroy a tank. Uh, and for which uh, the Department of Homeland Security recommends that you have a standoff distance outdoors of 620 yards. You think this guy shot this thing from 620 yards? Probably not. That's a hell of a shot.
0: Oh, uh, right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I'm sure he was concerned for all of his guest well being and that, uh, you know, no one suffered a concussion or anything else from it. But
1: uh, there's a really good video of this dude blowing up a car with 80 pounds of Tannerite at 400 yards. And unsurprisingly, it's, uh, it's in the middle of the
0: desert and it's just, it's, it's huge. 80 p- yeah, you get, you get your money's worth of 80 pounds, most certainly. So good for that guy. What's the appropriate <laughs> amount of pounds of Tannerite to use for a gender reveal? Probably like less than a pound. Yeah, these gender reveals are really bringing out the best decision making from some of our brightest members of society. The one guy in Arizona did it. Did you see that when uh, and he was actually like a wildlife official and, and he, caught, he caught like
1: like, a, like the natural forest on fire. Yeah, he he I don't know if he did jail time, but he definitely got a little bit of a fine. Um, how much tannerite gender how much tannerite for gender reveal? I just Googled this. They'll sell they'll sell you a pack for 15 pounds of pink powder and two pounds of tannerite to make the powder go. And you apparently don't even need that much. So this is about fifty to sixty
0: times the necessary level okay
1: yeah (laughs) that's incredible
0: and to think i had fun with uh with m80s or m60s or whatever they were growing up but uh yeah so also new hampshire is not
1: where i would have bet on that happening like if you said but i'm gonna give you 10 guesses i'm going like i'm taking a shot at like three southern states florida and then i'm just gonna like pepper spray the uh I'm going to spray the board of like the Western United States. So like give me, give me like Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas, you know, Nevada. And just hope I'm right. But like New Hampshire would have probably not even been the top half
0: of my guesses. I wouldn't think. Yeah, no, not your, not your typical <laughs> thought of a new England afternoon. Uh, that's for sure. Oh so. man. All right. We, let's get into some listener questions here. This This is a, this is a bit of a goofy episode, and I like it. When you uh, show poor decision making, only one way to redeem yourself—that uh, is to go to our good friends at Madison Social or Township, as I've uh, you know rode out a hangover once or twice myself. There, the next morning, uh, fantastic people, great supporters of the Knollcast. Two great options right there in the shadow of Doak Campbell Stadium, and as we are fond of saying, uh, you know, only but enhancers and and magnifiers of the experience of being a Florida state athletic fan. So shout out to those people who've been with us since day one and, uh, may you long support them. And, uh, we thank you for doing so. All right. Uh, so who's first tonight? What do we have? Okay. So first comes from Austin. He is, uh, a Patreon and supplied this question to us. He says, if you could give Mike Norvell one piece of advice for navigating this season, either on the field, recruiting our narrative slash Messaging, what would you say? I, I think Mike Norvell is a pretty smart guy.
1: Obviously, he's a much better football coach than I would be. Recruiting wise, I, I think he's doing pretty well. And I think that they are, for the most part, not chasing their tail on a bunch of kids that, that they can't get. I don't have, there's not too many kids on their board where I look at it and say, eh, they're, they're wasting their time, you know? And on the ones where I look at their board and say, I don't think they really have a shot in hell at getting that kid. Like, I don't think they really have much of a shot at, at Dalen Everett personally. I know they're in this top 10 or whatever, but I just, they're not really in it in my mind. Um, they have decent backup targets, you know, so I probably wouldn't go recruiting because I was going to say, Hey, reasonable targets, you know, secure a top 10 class. Don't, you know, secure a top 12 class. Don't drop back down to 18th because you try to get, you know, get a top five class, which is not going to happen if you go six and six. So I'll go to the six and six part. I think that I would start messaging now that it's our goal to return to a bowl. We want to get back to a bowl game. We want to double our wins, like start mastering those talking points right now. Look, we want to double our wins. This is a long-term rebuild. We're going to rebuild it the right way. We know we have alignment and patience for the administration, blah, 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 blah. I would start saying, look, we want to get back to six wins. That way, if you do do it like, and, and say, look, we know it's going to be a challenge. Right, this is a very difficult schedule. This roster is still very much in flux. It's it's part of a rebuild. He can't come out here and say, "Look, our roster is totally screwed for at least another year because FSU fired a coach after only two seasons in the, in the early signing period era." Which means like you have you know two classes in a three year span, which are just going to be attrition through the roof because they're you know like two to three weeks put them together. But that's the reality. So I I would say I'd start pitching that narrative. We're trying to make a bowl this year. Get back to a bowl.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll echo what you said. I don't really feel comfortable giving Mike Norvell advice on, on many things as I've yet to run a major program, much less something like Florida State, but I, I, mine was going to be more or less expectations. And, uh, you know, you, you said basically what I was going to say. Six wins, seven wins as a rousing success and proof that we are on the right track. Um, everything that I do about this year, as I've stated numerous times, is about project protecting uh, your class, keeping it uh, you know, together as much as possible and letting that really be the springboard that you know puts you back in the conversation of getting more elite players, winning games against higher quality level competition and being kind of the, the foundation to which you build everything around. So, uh, you know, uh, expectations and whatever it takes to retain Travis Hunter, that's what you're going to hear from.
1: Oh, you. that's a good one. Retain Travis Hunter.
0: At, uh, <laughs> yes. Coach Norbell, I strongly they, recommend Coach, I that. I don't know if you've put this on your checklist before, but uh, this kid out of Gwinnett, let's let's hold on to him if we can, please. Oh man. Um. Okay. What uh. What, what do we have next year? So Dave says, Florida State fans were lucky enough to experience the quarantine, the advent of early signing day, and two two coaching changes in five years. Moving forward, though, do you feel like the early signing uh, period will continue to be an issue for younger, newly hired coaches in college football? I I do. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think the transfer
1: portal can mitigate that, but it's not the solution. It's not the way out. It's just a way to not bottom out for years and years. I, I think that that's probably the key differentiator there. But yeah, I mean, I think the early signing period uh, is the smart ads out there are going to look at, look at the early signing period and say, hey, we need to we need to kind of push back expectations by a year. In most cases, I, I think year zero is appropriate now with the early signing period. Simply because you're just not going to get a whole lot of help in that first class. Like look, look at Willie's first class in the early signing period. That's one of the better ones out there. It's kind of crazy as far as attrition rates. You know, look at Norvell's. He already has attrition from from his class that he signed going, you know, in in the last year. That's because you just don't, you don't have time to put these classes together and form relationships with players. And in many cases. The reason why some of these kids are available is a bad reason. It's a reason you, as a new staff, don't know about. It's a reason that us on the recruiting side may not know about. It's a reason that other schools that have done a lot of research on these kids, they probably have an inkling of and they're not pushing for some of these kids that hard. So I I would say that's kind of my take on it. I think the early signing period absolutely uh, is a great thing for schools that are doing really well. And it does, in my opinion push back the timeline on things for for new coaches but not necessarily just young coaches i know you threw the young qualifier in there and dave i understand where you're going with that but like i think it's young and old coaches unless your coach is just so established like a you know saban or, or if like an urban meyer was to come back
0: all right next question comes from hunter well did we get the second part of that he says uh i'm sorry that's my fault dave he said, "Obviously, the general landscape will evolve in time, and coaches will market themselves differently for the time being. But is it going to continue to? Yeah, okay. Uh, is it going to continue to be difficult as a young coach uh, to go to a reputable program and hit the ground running? Yeah, we kind of organically covered that. I, I mean, unless you're talking about
1: like a Lincoln Riley situation where it's basically orchestrated and you're taking over a program that's doing really well. But if you're taking over a program that that fired its coach because it's not doing very well." I do think that the early signing period is absolutely a hindrance. Because keep in mind, many of these elite programs are working not a full year ahead, but about eight or nine months ahead. So you you are even at a disadvantage and, and and at a, you know, like they have a head start on you when you start working on your first full class. Cause they've been working on that first full class since well before you got hired at the new place.
0: So third question comes from Hunter tonight. Hunter says, I wasn't unfortunately, and Hunter states I, unfortunately, wasn't listening to this pod before the 2013 season. You guys mention a lot that Travis Hunter would start on this year's Florida State team as a high school senior. I remember you saying similar sentiments about Derwin James, maybe even a high school junior with him. Who do you think was the more impressive and or more important recruit? Any other recruits in the past couple decades that seemed to be more impressive than them uh, as far as a... Ability of uh, ready to play immediately, I believe, is what he's referencing there.
1: Yeah, I I would say, um, obviously, Durbin or excuse me, uh, Jalen played immediately. I didn't know that Jalen was as good as he was as a recruit. Like I knew he was really, really good, but I didn't know he was like starting on a national championship team from game one. Good, you know, and and he was. I just I I saw him some, but I didn't see him dominate on a weekend week out basis as much as I saw. Derwin do it and uh, and Travis Hunter do it other FSU are we limiting this just to FSU recruits because like Fournette to me was pretty obvious right like he was going to come in and play an absolute ton on a really good football team immediately and I think would have following his high school junior season who do I think is better between Hunter and Derwin as recruits I don't know, man. So like in the offseason, you're not really getting to see the power that Derwin has. But when you watch his highlight tape, Derwin had this freaky you know, power and strength that just other guys in the secondary don't have. I mean, you saw him truck Florida's offensive
0: tackle. Was that his freshman season? Pick him up and threw him. Yes, he was a senior, a a graduate transfer, but still a a grown ass man. Right, but Derwin
1: was a freshman. I don't know, but Hunter is so damn good, and he's dominating on both sides of the ball. Now, they they did give the ball to Derwin some on offense, but Derwin was also playing a whole lot of positions on defense in high school. I I can't believe I'm doing this, but I might have to pick Hunter just because of the dominance on both sides of the ball.
0: You didn't know exactly what Greg Reed was going to be in college, but you knew like when people from South Georgia tell you that that's the best player they've seen in 10 or 15 years, you've got a pretty good feeling that that's going to transfer in some form or capacity. It may be as a punt returner. It may be, you know, as a offensive specialist. Um, Florida State recruits recently. I mean, obviously the the big time kid, Timmy Jernigan, you knew he was going to be absent injury, a super dominant player. Yeah, those are the ones that really kind of immediately come to mind for me. Uh, Just guys that you knew could probably skip a year and immediately be impactful.
1: You know, and I think it's important to note, like we've said, like, hey, Evan Neal would have started for them as a high school senior, right, if if they could get him. Obviously, they did not get him. But that was in part because they were so bad at the position, you know? I think it's important to note that when we say, like, this kid could start for you right now, FSU doesn't suck at DB, and yet I still think Travis Hunter would come in here and start. You know, they definitely didn't suck at DB when they signed Derwin, and yet he came in there and, and you know, played a whole lot of starting minutes
0: or starting snaps. So that's a good question. Uh, moving on to the gentleman who always writes us uh, insightful thoughts. Kesna uh, brings us the final questions of the evening. Uh, Kesna says, in aggregating the commentary around the spring game, one of the things I've heard multiple times, which I found concerning, was praise for Norvell, quote, coaching them hard. From what I've seen, quote, coaching them hard means yelling at players when they make mistakes. I used to make fun of Jimbo for doing this, and I've never seen a player respond positively to this type of coaching. One thing I found most disturbing about coaching them hard is the optics of grown men, almost exclusively Caucasian, who are paid millions of dollars per year yelling at unpaid kids, predominantly african American. What are your thoughts on Norvell and others, quote, coaching them hard? Does this appeal to the modern player? For clarity, I believe in holding players accountable for their performance and effort, uh, but I'm not sure that yelling at them is the way to make this happen. I I
1: think Kesta brings up some really good points here, Um, and it's something I've certainly thought about I think one of the keys here is do the players respect you if they respect you as a coach and as a person and you're yelling at them you're probably going to have their attention you know you can lose that respect if the only pitch you throw is yelling i don't get the impression that norvell is that guy just you know watching him coach i've certainly seen him get hot but I've also seen him talk in a more reasonable voice, right? And have conversations with guys. And you know, if you talk to guys who know guys on this team, and you talk to them you know, off the record, like they, a lot of the dudes on this team, you know, white and black kids, have a real genuine respect for the guy and truly believe that he has their best interests at heart. But yeah, like the optics of of, of the yelling are... Are certainly not great, and I do think that that's something that coaches are going to have to evolve with. But I, I think we've already seen that happen, you know, quite a bit. For instance, I don't think Brian Kelly gets purple faced on the sideline, you know, near as much as he used to. Now he still yells, but it's not the only card he plays. I, yeah,
0: he doesn't go eggplant purple. You're you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, you
1: know. So I I just it, much in the same way that like I don't think coaches that have views. Players shouldn't be paid, or I'll quit if guys ever ever you know get paid. I don't think that that plays in the long run, right? Which is why I think it's smart that Norvell is out there, kind of being progressive on on that issue and, and on the name, image, and likeness issue. But but I understand Keston's question here, and um, and I don't I don't disagree with his sentiment. Uh, I also think that it's important here. You can lose people's respect if your criticism. Regardless of tone, is about is personal in nature as opposed to a, a criticism of the performance. You know, for instance, if you're calling somebody you know, dumb or you know a, a more word we don't say anymore for you know for for dumb um, or challenged or whatever, uh, you know, if you are saying other things that you really shouldn't be saying, like we've seen coaches across the country say that that doesn't play. Like that, that just doesn't work anymore. I don't have any inkling that Norvell is is doing that. I, I think he's getting his message across, you know, pretty well. But he is absolutely intense. Um, you just it's about the balance, I think. You're always gonna have some yelling in football. I don't know any coach that doesn't yell. You just gotta make sure your message gets through in a variety of ways and know which kids react to to what type of coaching.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you got to know what kids react, and and ultimately, uh, your original point I completely uh, agree with. I mean, as a as somebody in the locker room, uh, you get a feel as to whether or not this guy really has a concern for you. I'm not saying every coach or every player thinks that you know Norvell's fantastic, et cetera, et cetera, but you know, you you generally have a feel as to whether somebody is authentically wanting. Uh, what's best for you, or if he's just dog cussing you because he wants to. I mean, uh, some of the coaches that I had, one in particular, who I thought, you know, were concerned for my well being and and wanted the best for me, uh, would would say crazy stuff to you in the heat of the moment. Uh, but you knew that that guy ultimately, uh, you know, was there because he cared an awful lot about you and wanted the best for you, and you know, you had your own way of kind of letting that roll over your back rather than internalizing it and and thinking that that was personal or whatever else. So, um. Yeah, the optics of those situations don't look great. Uh, Maybe if you're one of those things where you're inside the locker room, uh, you realize that it's not quite as uh, consumed internally and kept by a player, uh, depending on your own internal relationship with a coach and what you think they want for you.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Keston's second question uh, says, with the NCAA finalizing the details of the one-time transfer waiver rule, should we expect a flurry of transfer portal activity leading up to the May 1st deadline? The May 1st deadline, by the way, uh, is if you're not in the transfer portal by May 1st, then you're not. You don't get to avail yourself uh, with the uh, the the immediate transfer eligibility for the fall. Casting uh, continues. How aggressive should we be in the offensive of lineman market, or are there any other positions we should pursue to have maximum success in 2021? Also, how many scholarships are left, which can be used to grab a portal player to impact
0: 2021? Uh, but do you see a flurry of activity prior to May 1st. I mean. Me personally, I think a lot of these guys have a pretty good feeling as to whether or not they wanted to enter the portal. What we have eight days, nine days before that.
1: Yeah, I I would say, um, I think we will see a couple more kids jump in, but ultimately not a huge flurry uh, simply because these kids didn't all of a sudden jump in in droves for no reason. They expected the rule to pass. In fact, it was going to pass last year, except COVID hit. Like this has been unanimous for probably 18 months now. So, not unanimous, but like well known, this was going to pass for for quite some time now. Uh, so I would not say that they have you know a huge uh, a huge wave coming. How aggressive should they be in the offensive line market? I, I'm on record as saying at this point, I think like it's important you take somebody, you know, if he can be your sixth offensive lineman, take him because anything you can do to avoid having to play, you know, Neal or or Goss in an important situation, or even like having to play Brady Scott a whole lot, uh, especially at tackle. Uh, it is something that can help you avoid your floor, and you know it'd be to me the difference between five and six wins is much bigger than the difference between let's say six and seven wins, or you know seven or eight wins, if that makes sense. Like getting to that sixth win, I think is actually important for optics, important for recruiting, doing things that have you know help you help you avoid having a losing record. To me, for this season, are more important than doing things that could, in theory, help you have a winning record, and. The players you pursue, uh, given that, could actually be a little bit different. Uh, How many scholarships are left, which could be used to grab a portal player? Uh, I was told they think they're going to have two, but they know they have one, so that's interesting. And that is a
0: maybe. I mean, I know we talked about the thoughts that they had one more, uh, which was at the time people weren't certain of. But uh, yeah, if they can find two, that's uh, gives you that lineman play, and then maybe lets you go. You know kind of hunt for best player available if you want to do so, such a thing. Um, so, interesting. Final question of the night comes from Kesna. Uh, he says, I'm confused by the true difference in responsibilities for each position in Fuller's 5-2 versus his 4-3. With Kevin Knowles and Jamie Robinson used in the stud position, doesn't that really mean we are putting faster players at linebacker, or is the role intended to be a fifth defensive bat?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the way they're playing it now, um, I I believe that their intention is to play it as, as a true you know, fifth defensive back. Uh, when they went to this last year, you know, R- Robinson is more of a safety, but he's definitely not going to be confused for a linebacker. Knowles is more of a corner, but again, still a, a defensive back, much like Robinson is. When they went to this lineup last year, last year we did see some improvement late in the season. I think they want to have you know more speed on the field. If you think about their opponents for the most part, you're playing uh, far more teams that are running some variant of the spread offense. And I think they want to match personnel and just deal with the run game inside. Yeah. Honestly, we are seeing that pass defense matters a lot more than run defense. You know, maybe for the first time in college football ever. But like, if you look at like what correlates with, with good SP plus defense. Hold on, let me, let me pull up. I'm typing here in the background if you guys can't hear me. Assuming you can, though, this takes a second to load. It's a it's a huge, huge spreadsheet that I that I made off of a stats portal I have access to. Ingram, can you sing some elevator music for us, please?
0: I'll sing some elevator music. One other guy that I had from my Oklahoma, I was just thinking, uh, a little bit of off the beaten path. Oh, Jerry Johnson uh, would have been a good choice there. I am pretty sure he was a state champion wrestler uh, back in the day. A guy that kind of gets overlooked uh, among those great. Florida State teams, but if you want somebody that's just going to get you a stalemate, uh, a little bit lower uh, to the ground, I think Jerry was around five foot six, eleven or so. He somebody he'd be in my competition. He'd be in my conversation for defensive lineman.
1: I agree with that. That's um, actually really a really good pick by you. So check this out. So Washington, right? The Huskies, really good defense. Obviously, Jimmy Lakes, the head coach, was a guy that a lot of FSU fans wanted to be the defensive coordinator here. So last year, Washington defensively. Their defense ranked 19th in the country on SP Plus, right? They ranked 111th in rushing success rate allowed, 40th in passing success rate allowed, 119th in rushing explosiveness allowed, 4th in passing explosiveness allowed. And yet, their defense was 19th in the country, opponent adjusted. What does this tell me? It's not that run defense doesn't matter at all, but with college football becoming more and more and more and more and more explosive. The name of the game to playing really good defense is limiting explosive plays pretty much more than ever. Washington did that. Where do explosive plays come from? They can come on the ground, but for the most part they come through the air. And so Washington's defense in many areas was terrible, right? Not that great at all. Standard down success rate allowed 120th in the country. Passing down success rate allowed 16th. Passing down explosiveness allowed third. Stopping those explosive plays is a really high correlation with playing really good defense. So it's my opinion that that is the main reason why FSU is doing this. They want to limit the explosive plays they were giving up they'll die of a thousand paper cuts in some games if they can you know trade that off by not allowing not allowing the explosives in others but, but thank you for vamping by the way i was i, I think took forever to love.
0: <laughs> no i mean i think that's as, as good of an answer that can be uh given there but yeah no the old oklahoma drill i'll be thinking about that for the next three or four days i'll, I'll be sure to text you because i know you're going to want my thoughts on uh, the evolving ideas to who I'd put out there on my Oklahoma front six uh, or select six. Uh, anyway, do we have anything else that we would want to uh, touch on tonight? It looks like we're done with our listener questions.
1: We we asked for a bunch of them uh, via Twitter. Coincidentally, we actually answered several of them uh, within the show. I'm looking here. Um, Stephen Barber wanted to know, do we have any data on how often uh, kids recommit to a school? I I don't. I want to pull that from our 24-7 system, but some of the stuff there appears kind of wonky, so I need to make sure the data is actually correct on that before I dive into that. Uh, This one's interesting. Shrimpton 4, which is better for FSU long-term, Alford as a booster president or him moving into the athletic director role, and
0: why? Um, Well, if you subscribe to the idea that ultimately he would be able to fundraise I don't know. I was having a conversation recently with somebody, Bud, and they almost referred to Alford as, the as AD. an athletic director. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably the direction we're going here. Who knows? Uh, that is what it feels like to me. Uh, what's he better at? I don't know. We may find out.
1: We, I think we will find out. Uh, I, I think he will be your next AD.
0: My guys kind of say the same thing.
1: They, they expect that to happen. Now, the reason why I'm going to say AD is because I think he can set in place some good things as the booster president within a relatively short time, and they can get somebody to see that vision through. I don't think it's that impossible to run FSU boosters. I think they had some unique sort of entrenched issues that once you got somebody else in there who was competent, things were going to get better, and they already are. My main concern here, and I brought this up earlier in the show, is the early signing period. And what do you get with the early signing period with you know constant coaching turnover. I believe that Alford likes Norvell quite a bit and sees the the changes he's making inside the program, especially some of the behind the scenes changes he's making that are, are key to laying the groundwork to the next decade of success. It doesn't necessarily mean that Norvell is going to be the guy that's going to have great success at Florida State, although he certainly could. But I I do believe it is really important that they give somebody, and that they didn't give Willie, and I. Like I've said, I think there are real reasons why they made that move behind the scenes, some concerning stuff. But I think they need some stability at the head coaching position, especially in the early signing period era. And if you leave Alford as your booster president and the new AD comes in and it's not Alford, maybe Norvell is not his guy. Maybe he doesn't understand all of the issues that the early signing period brings with it as far as creating a long-term rebuild when you decide to make the decision that they did. Which, I mean... they. They made a choice to have a long-term rebuild. And that guy goes and, you know, like, let's say hypothetically gets rid of Norvell after 22 or something and goes to get his own guy. Then I think you're just back in this same cycle, right, of, of this never-ending roster attrition, transfer portal guy, leave-in type thing. So I think just because of their relationship, I I think it's very important you have somebody in the athletic director role that's going to give the head coach time to see his vision through. And I think Alford will do that. So. For that reason, I think it's better that he is in the AD role.
0: You know, almost like he's getting to do the old Jimbo, the old uh, coach and waiting routine, where he's getting to to feel a lot of the, you know, situations, the players uh, get a better idea for the landscape. And ultimately, I think he's going to be your next AD. And this time period will, uh, you know, probably only be but a a really good thing for him.
1: I, I completely agree with that. I think those two are pretty aligned just based on things I've heard.
0: Yeah, I think you got a good uh a good set of individuals there. I think Alford was a really dynamic hire. So far, he is everything that his resume and past experience would suggest he's been. Uh, he's been a pretty dynamic recruiter. He's been able to engage people and develop relationships with people who have otherwise either chosen not to participate or participate at a um I don't want to say a level of insignificance, but not maybe closer to what their potential is. Uh he's 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 willing to go meet with uh, two to three people and, and, uh, you know, get them on a, a level of participation that they haven't been previously doing. And he's a guy who's pretty dynamic in a room full of hundred people either. He's uh a, you know, so far so good on that end. And uh, like you said, I believe these two work together real well. Uh, Norvell is uh, at least at this point in his career, more than willing to do like the, the, <laughs> you know, super micro targeted uh, fundraising and, and uh, you know, that's not necessarily something that has to be done at every program, but it, it is at this one at least in this point in time. So, uh, good chemistry between the two, and by all accounts, they'll probably be working together for a decent amount of time.
1: All right, man. Very much appreciate all of our sponsors here. Do we need to do we hit Congruity?
0: Yeah. No, I was gonna say before uh, we sign off tonight, we do need to thank our friends at Congruity. Congruity is experiencing your business optimized. Have been nothing but a great addition to the NoLcast. Uh, give him a call. Give Matt Lewis 10, 15 minutes of your time. See if it would be a good fit uh, for your business. You can reach Matt uh, via Knowles at CongruityHR.com N-O-L-E-S at CongruityHR.com or at 844-247-4100 If you just want to get a quick view, quick feel for what Congruity Congruity is and what they could be for your business, it's CongruityHR.com and uh, that'll be another episode of the Nolecast. So Two in one week. Thoroughly enjoyed both of them. Uh, tried a little bit of a, a different situation from an audio standpoint tonight, so hopefully that works out well. Thank you so much for your feedback, listenership, and if you give us a chance to give us five, to five stars on iTunes or any of the other podcast uh, providers that you find us on. It would be greatly appreciated.
1: This has been the Knollcast. The Knollcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Moes.